in Matthew. And as I think I mentioned it last week, things are going to start getting more intense. We're, we're in the, the week of Jesus' crucifixion now. This is, it's all coming together. And, and Jesus himself is going to be intensifying his teaching. And so if you remember, he's already gone into the temple, overturned the tables, kicked out the money changers, and then he just sat there and began to teach, right? This is the next day. He's left the temple, come back, and he's been teaching in the temple again. This time, the religious leaders have decided that they are going to put Jesus in their place. And as we saw that in chapter 22, it has not worked out for them at all. <laughs> that every time they think, oh, we've got him now, we're, we're going to catch him in his words, we're going to trick him, uh, they just get annihilated. And I love it every time. <laughs> I picture it like a boxing match, right? Again, this is just the way I picture things. And, and if you've watched much boxing, occasionally you see these matches where these guys, they're just on the ropes. There's just like one guy in the corner and he can barely even lean against the rope correctly. He's just falling apart. And the guy in the other corner is just fresh as a daisy. <laughs> That's what's going on here. Jesus hasn't even broken a sweat. And these guys have come at Jesus with every combination they can think of to no avail. Um, he has just dismantled all of their traps and arguments, leaving them speechless and humbled. Um, and this is chapter 22, the second half. It just continues right on with what, what we've been seeing. But it, they are coming to an end. So these guys are going to realize at the end of chapter 22 that they are not succeeding. Not only are, are they not winning the arguments, but everyone around them. Keep in mind, there's a multitude of people that have gathered and as Jesus deals with these guys and is in conflict with them, he's, he's actually teaching the multitude at the same time, letting them know these are the things that are wrong and these are the things that are right. These are the things that are true. So he's correcting the wrong teaching of the religious leaders, and, uh, and they're, not, they're not loving that. So, <laughs> so we're going to pick up in verse 23, but let's pray. Lord God, again, we are so blessed to be able to gather together with your people and study your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in this place and your way in each and every one of us, that you would keep us from distraction and that, God, you would teach us who you are and how these things apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Starting in verse 23, it says, the same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. Now, there was with us seven brothers, and the first one died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, and likewise the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died, therefore, in the resurrection. Whose wife of the seven will she be? For, for they all had her. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, 
I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, each of the religious groups has gathered around. And, and it's interesting to me because though we can look at this and go, okay, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we even saw the Hellenists last week and, and uh, the scribes. All of them have a counterpart today. That, that it wasn't just that those groups existed then and no longer exist. There are plenty of Pharisees in the world today that love legalism and love rules and, and think they're attaining some sort of righteousness. And so you can look at those groups, the very ones that were against Jesus and in conflict with Jesus, and, and as I said, find their counterpart today. The Sadducees, um, I think probably the best example are the liberal theologians, people that have studied Scripture, but as they've studied it, they are looking for a reason not to believe. They, whether they've gone through a, a seminary or a college or some self-education on YouTube, whatever it might be, that, that they've decided that they are so intelligent that they do not need the things of the Lord. They consider themselves the peak of intelligence. And with this wisdom, they dismiss the things of God. And that was the case with the Sadducees. They really thought of themselves as being the intelligentsia of their day. And in that, through their great wisdom, they dismissed the existence of angels and demons, miracles, and even heaven itself, saying that there is no, there's nothing beyond this, there's no resurrection of the dead, there's, there's no heaven. Yet they considered themselves theologians, right? So, the way that, one of the ways that they would justify this is that they said the only books that were inspired by God were the first five books of Moses. And, and that if it wasn't in the first five books of Moses clearly, then they'd say it just doesn't exist. And so they would point and say, well, there's nowhere in, in those five books that heaven is mentioned or the resurrection is mentioned. Therefore, it's, it's made up. It's something that man came up with after that. And, uh, and they would use these circular logic type questions that they didn't think had an answer and decide that, well, if you can't answer this question, then obviously these things aren't true and, and would dismiss all of the things of biblical truth by doing just that. And again, plenty of people will do the same thing today. Um, kind of come off as, as like anything of faith, anything of scriptural belief, that these things are primitive. These things are for the unintelligent. These are superstitions that the intelligent people have gone beyond, right? Still, like I said, plenty of that today. And so as they come to Jesus, they, they start with this command that was given to Moses, that if a man dies, this is verse 24, uh, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Uh, and that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And so it's a very clear commandment that God gave in Israel. And to us, that seems super weird. I mean, it's the idea like, wait a second, that if a man dies and doesn't have kids, his brother has to marry his wife, right? Well, that seems so strange. But it made sense in Israel, and there was a reason for it. Um, because the land was divided up by tribes and then by family and all the way down to individuals. 
And if a person died with no offspring, with no kids at all, then his inheritance was lost. And his family name ceased to exist. And so to stop that and to keep everything going in the right lines, in the right family names, um, this was the solution that God gave to Israel. That, uh, which again, it, it changes the whole way when like, you picture the first dinner where she's like meeting the family, <laughs> looking around the table going, that's the older brother, eh, okay, you know. Or, you know, just knowing that something goes wrong, that's the next guy, and you got to take all that into consideration. It was literally marrying into the family, right? Now, the Sadducees didn't have a problem with that. So they're not, they're not discrediting the, the commandment. But what they've done is they've taken that commandment, made up a story that they think disproves heaven, that disproves the resurrection and life beyond this world. Uh, and so they, this ridiculous story of seven brothers that uh, all marry this same woman, they all die, and honestly, I would suspect the wife. Seven guys in a row? At some point, you're like, I don't know if it's, she's cooking something wrong or if she's, she's knocking these guys off, right? But eventually, she dies too in this story. Uh, and, and their point is, well, okay, if the resurrection, resurrection is real, then how can this be something that's, that's justified or allowed? Or how does this make any sense at all? Um, and it's funny to me how they just think so highly of their own intelligence. I mean, they seem pretty proud of themselves, this, this scenario that they've come up with. And, and the idea is that they're so intelligent that if they can't figure it out, then it just can't exist. And how arrogant that is. But at the same time, I, I think probably all of us at one time or another have been in that place. And we've certainly known people with that same idea. You know, I've had, <laughs> I've had people ask the silliest questions sometimes. But to them, it's huge, right? Can God do anything? Yes, God can do anything. Can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? yes, and then he'll pick it up. What? You know, it, it, just whatever their question is, and they're like, well, if, if I can't figure this out, then it must not be real. And honestly, the answer is, or you're just not as smart as you think you are. How can predestination and free will work together? I don't know, but God says they do, and therefore I trust his opinion. I don't have to get it all figured out, these guys have decided they are the ones that have gone beyond, man, with their highly evolved brain and logic, are dismissing the things of God. And actually, uh, then and now, it's the same process, it's the same idea, and I think it's very clearly addressed from Paul in Romans chapter 1, when he describes the same thing. And he ties it right into justifying sin in our life and purposely chasing after things that we know we're wrong, that we begin this process in order to justify sin. But he says this in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21. It says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their, in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools. That sums it up. And whether they're coming at it from a theological point of view or they're 
supposedly using science to justify. It's, it's, it's the exact same thing. It's professing to be wise. Because I have become so advanced in my intellect, I can dismiss the things of God. And they have become fools by doing it. Now, I love how Jesus deals with this. Because again, he doesn't enter into an intellectual debate with them about these issues. And that's a trap I would usually fall into. That if somebody wants to have that kind of discussion, then I'm like, well, okay, let's talk about science and how science lines up with Scripture. Let's, you know, kind of do an apologetics kind of approach. And, and I think that's fine. And it's one of those things that we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit on how we address it. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't drop to their level. He doesn't get into a debate with them. Um, instead, with all of their wisdom and all of their intellect that they're so proud of, in verse 29, Jesus says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. So they come at him with this unsolvable question that they think is so deep, and Jesus just says, you have no idea what you're talking about. That must have been a huge blow to these guys because they thought they were the theologically intelligent elite. And Jesus just says, you guys don't have a clue. You don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. Now, to say that they don't know the scriptures is, is accurate, but they certainly didn't believe that. They knew scripture. They had memorized scripture. They could quote from the prophets and from the law. And, and so it isn't like they went, what scripture are you talking about? They consider themselves experts. And when Jesus says you don't know the scriptures, what he's really saying is you don't understand them. You don't know the heart of them. Sure, you've got lots of it memorized, but you've missed the whole point. Again, something we all need to be careful of doing, that we're not viewing Scripture through an incorrect lens that distorts it. Whether we start looking in Scripture to find what we want to find rather than letting it say what it says. To me, I think it's one of the most important things, whether we're talking about studying the Scripture on Sunday or in our private devotion time, that I think there is a, a very important thing about going through the Scriptures completely. You know, it's okay to jump around a little bit sometimes, but I, when you keep it in context, it says what it says whether you like it or not. It corrects my thinking. It changes my heart. But if I want to find something, well, okay, I want to prove somebody's wrong, and so let me get into the scriptures that will back up my arguments. Then it, I, I can very easily twist the scriptures to say what I want them to say. And that's what these guys have done. They have taken the scriptures that fit their agenda, that fit their point, that backed up their arguments, and they have dismissed the rest. So when Jesus says, you do not know the scriptures, the idea is that they do not understand what the scriptures really say. The other thing is they did not know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. 
Now, again, in the same way, it isn't just the power that God has. It isn't just what God does when he creates or when he destroys or when he gives or he takes away. It's not that. It's you don't understand, first of all, the immense power he has, that he is God Almighty, unlimited by all things. And you also don't understand the character of God that uses that power. Why God does what he does, you know? And again, I know in the church there's a huge debate on, you know, how many days of creation were there, and did it really mean this, and or did it really mean that? And to me, it always comes back to, we're talking about an almighty God, unlimited by anything. The fact that he said it took him six days meant he took his time. He could have simply went, it's all in existence then. And I don't worry about the actual timing of my understanding because, again, he's not limited by anything. But more important, again, than what he does is why he does it. That because he could be a a God of immense, unlimited power and not be good. But what he does, he does because he is good. That he... uh, allowed himself to become one of us, to pay a price we never could. The works he does, the miracles that Jesus does, again, were a benefit to the individuals he did them too, but it was to show the love of God the Father. These people do not understand that at all. Though they've studied the scriptures, though they've argued and debated and had all kinds of philosophical ideas, they have completely missed the meaning of the scriptures and the character of God himself. They have been looking for a reason not to believe. Um, And this really doesn't just, it's not just for the Sadducees. As Jesus is speaking to them because they asked the question, this applies to all the religious leaders at the time. It's the Pharisees, it's the scribes, it's the Sadducees, it's the Hellenists, it's, it's all the people who are gathered around him. These things that he's talking about apply to all of them. They'd all studied the scriptures, but again, it was for their benefit, for their argument, not to be changed by it. We can be people that have our Bibles all marked up, underlined, dog-eared, and all these other things to correct other people. Oh, when they have this argument, man, I'm going to flip to this scripture. I'm going to put them in their place. And I believe what we're called to be is people that our Bibles are marked up because these things apply to me. Because I need to be changed at the very core of who I am. I need him to correct me. And that comes by the power of his word and by the power of God. And that that needs to be our desire. That needs to be our motivation. Again, Jesus doesn't get into this debate with them. He just tells them, you guys don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't start to discuss the proof that heaven exists. He just describes what it's like. (laughs) I love it. Because he's like, "Um, okay, which of us have been there? Me. Let me tell you what it's like. And he just like starts describing what heaven will be like. And uh, when it comes to marriage, again, the idea is that we're going to have a completely different relationship in heaven. 
And it's going to be amazing. It won't even compare to the things of earth. So to say, will people be married in heaven or won't they be married in heaven, doesn't even compare. That the idea is that we're going to be completely open and honest. There will be nothing hidden. There will be no darkness, no sin. And we are going to know one another and we are going to be known by one another. We get little glimpses of that. You know, in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah show up. And, and they weren't wearing name tags. And Jesus didn't introduce them to the other disciples. Like, hey, boys, guess what? This is Moses and Elijah. They just knew, right? They saw Moses and Elijah and went, I know exactly who that is. And in heaven, that gives us a little bit of a glimpse. We will be known by one another on a whole new level. And so Jesus describes this, saying that they won't be married and they won't be given in marriage. Um, with the idea it's going to be something so much deeper. What's funny is over the years when I've taught this, there's the young marrieds that hear this and go, what? We're not going to be married in heaven? Babe, what up? <laughs> and the people who've been married a little bit longer are like, okay. <laughs> That's all right. Again, it's, it's that it's going to be so much deeper. And... Uh, for these guys, remember, again, what they're pointing to is their uh, authority are the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, right? And so Jesus, again, has been correcting these guys, putting them in their place, letting them know how far off they are, and again, to let them know how little they know. He points to the five books that they hold as the authority and basically shows them, you don't even know those. When he says, and it's just kind of like this, oh, and by the way, God did talk to Moses about the resurrection, right? That's their big thing. There is no resurrection. There's no heaven. We're so smart, we know that. And, and Jesus goes, oh, yeah, and by the way, God did talk to Moses about it. In verse 31 and 32, he says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I am the God of Abraham. Not I was. I was their God. Then they died. They're gone. And so then I became Jacob's God. And then he died and he moved on. I am presently. I'm alive. And so are they. And I know right where they're at is the idea. And I love how Jesus, like I said, just like throws it out. He's already dealt with their first thing on marriage. Like, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. And then just as a side note, completely dismantles what these guys have built everything upon. That there is no resurrection. Using their text to do it. Um, and again, like I said earlier, so much of this is for the crowd who is listening. This conflict between the religious leaders, we never see a point where they change their mind, where they're like, oh, good point, Jesus. Man, we've been wrong about everything. They keep separating, regrouping, and then coming back and attacking again, and that doesn't change. But the group that's there who has heard this wrong teaching for so long, and it, these guys have muddied up the water so much that the common person really had trouble understanding the scriptures at all. Because they're like, I, I don't know, are the Pharisees right? Are, are the Sadducees right? Or who's right about this? Because they are all in conflict with one another, so I don't really know what to believe. Jesus just 
wipes all that away and, and makes it clear for the crowd that is around him. Verse 33 says that when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Man, can you imagine that? Again, being raised in that culture, all that confusion. And these guys, the, all the religious leaders hated each other. They were in constant conflict. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and just clears all of the nonsense away. And for the first time, it makes sense. That's the astonishment that these people had. That The multitude was just like, oh, I get it. Man, I get it. I'm understanding the scriptures. I'm understanding the heart of God the Father for the first time. And this is the guy that knows it. Awesome. All right, verse 33, excuse me, verse 34 goes on. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, The son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that time, from that day on, did any question him anymore. Now, they have been trying to lay trap after trap for Jesus. Every group of the religious leaders have, have taken their shot. Lawyers, the intelligence you know, group, the, the politicians... And one by one, Jesus has just exposed their false motives, their wrong teachings, annihilated them. Um, and then there's just one more. This guy just like just trying to take a shot. One of the other Pharisees, this lawyer, and, and he says, what is the greatest commandment? Now, others have asked that question, but this time we know that it was not an honest question because it says that he was testing him. It was another trap. This was another huge debate, especially along, among the religious leaders. Um, and it was one of those that there was really no right answer to for them. Because whenever they talked about the greatest commandments, they're talking about the Ten Commandments. Which of the greatest of the Ten Commandments, which is the greatest of all? It didn't matter which one you picked because everyone else could justify how it was another one. So... Pick whichever one you want. And that's the trap they're trying to draw Jesus into here. Is that no matter what he says, well, they can somehow back up the other nine and, and show that Jesus really doesn't have a concern or care about the other things of the law, right? So Jesus doesn't choose one of the ten, which is what they expected him to do or what they were hoping that he would, would do. And so he, first of all, points to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then says the second is like it, and he points to Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourselves. But what he says is so interesting 
is that all of the law and all of the prophets hinge on these two commandments. Now, first of all, they didn't really consider those commandments. They're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's scripturally true. But all of the law and all of the commandments, all the prophets, there's only two categories. They are either your relationship with God or your relationship with people. And that's it. And so Jesus is saying, scripturally, everything fits in one of these two categories. And these are commandments of God, that first of all, you should love him above everything else, and then love one another. And again, there's a logical side to that argument as well, because if we love God, we will find ourselves loving what he loves. It's just, it's just the way it works. And what does he love? People. So if I love what God loves, I'm not going to be lying, stealing, cheating other people because he loves them. And so there's just a logical, it doesn't work the other way around. You can't love people and then love God after, you know, somehow from that. It doesn't work that way. That first we must love God with, with everything we are, holding nothing back from him. Meaning our relationship between the two of us is, is honest and clear and unhindered. And then from there, love can flow out to other people correctly. But it, it can't otherwise. Now, again, if this was a boxing match, these guys would be completely gassed out, just waiting for the bell to ring, right? And Jesus, again, not even breaking a sweat. I just picture him in, the, in his corner like, come on. <laughs> let's, let's go again. You know, they're like, oh, can't even lean on the rope correctly. And again, one more thing that he throws out here. They've been asking all the questions. They've been on the attack. And then just, again, I don't think it's in a mean way. He just gets their attention. They've all kind of gathered together. All the Pharisees come together. Well, what are we going to do now? And we didn't think he was going to be able to silence the Sadducees. Those guys never shut up, and they're out of words. And, and, and what are we going to do? And Jesus goes, hey, I got a question for you. <laughs> what do you guys think about the Messiah? And again, I, I picture everyone like, what? Whose son is he? In other words, whose, whose lineage is the Messiah supposed to come through? Oh, he's the son of David. And that was well understood and very clear. Now, whether or not, and I've always wondered this, whether or not they knew that Jesus was of the line of David, I don't know. I mean, we know because it's in Scripture. But did they study that out? Did they know what tribe Jesus was a part of? I don't know. But when they say the son of David, they had a di very different idea of the Messiah and who he would be. We've talked a lot about that. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for somebody who was going to overthrow Rome. And so when they said, well, he's to be the son of David, there, it doesn't just mean that he's like of the tribe of David or the tribe of Judah that David was a part of. It means that he was a military leader like David. He was a conqueror like David. And so Jesus says, well, then why does David, and in their mind, the greatest king that ever existed, 
why does David call him Lord? If, if he's part of the genealogy of David, then that would make him less than David, make him uh, subservient to David's authority. Then why, when David was filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesying of things to come, that the Messiah would be of his lineage, why does David call him Lord? And they knew the answer to that. Because while they didn't necessarily pursue the idea that the Messiah would be God on earth, David makes it clear that he is. That David calls him Lord. And that word is reserved for God. He is the Lord God Almighty is the idea. And that's why David calls him Lord. And so Jesus is actually revealing something to the, the religious leaders and again to the whole crowd. If I'm the Messiah, David called me Lord. He called me God. And again, he just kind of lets it hang. He doesn't like give him some resolve to that. He just asks the question, he's like, how about that? And they're just scrambled. Mind's blown, right? And from that point on, no one asks him any more questions. This has not gone the way that they thought. This has not trapped Jesus in anything. In fact, they have come out looking horrible every time. This is the point they throw in the towel. Um, and again, it's important to note that all of these guys that have been coming at Jesus have been doing it out of wrong motives. They're not trying to get truth. They're not wanting to change. They're certainly not interested in repenting. They believe that their intellect is more important than anything else. But with all of that said, I think it is important to note too, I think it's good for us to use our intellect. I don't believe we're called to a blind faith. We're not called to be people that just go, oh, okay, I'm just going to believe it because someone else told me to believe it. I think it's great for us to use what we've been given science and research and archaeology and all of those things to study them and to look into the word of god to go how do these line up i think it's great for us to wrestle with questions that are hard and ideas that's like well how would this work if this took place i think it's so healthy for our faith to do that but we need to make sure we're doing it with the right lens that we're looking into the scriptures for the right reason Again, knowing that my intellect can very easily be off. My information that I've received can be very easily off and tainted or one-sided. But the scripture can be trusted. So more than anything else that I want to know, I want to know the word of God. I want to know the power of God. I want to know the promises that he has made. I want to know the character of who he is. And though I love to wrestle with certain questions, when it comes down to it, at some point for every person, it requires a step of faith. Man, you can study and study and study and, and, uh, and come to all these different conclusions, but at some point for every person, there is a point where you simply have to go, God, I'm going to trust you with what I don't understand. And as we do that, we can rest that he is good. And we can rest in the fact that he is out for our good. That we can take in the word of God and be changed by it. And that we can know the power of God, knowing that his character is one of love and is always out for our good. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And uh, that time and time again, you have proven yourself faithful and true and powerful. And, and Lord, we just want to be people who are getting in line with you, following you, and being changed and renewed by you. We, we give ourselves to you again. Do whatever you want in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.